0: Welcome back to First Corinthians. We've been on a break a while, but I've got to tell you, <laughs> reading that rough around the edges. <laughs> hey, <you're not> kidding. <laughs> when, when you read this chapter with no acknowledgment <coughs> that translations of the original language often leave us wanting with no understanding of Corinthian culture at that time, with no awareness of the unique challenges that the believers in Corinth were presenting to Paul, when you read it without any contextual grasp of Paul's greater theology, which is, we're all sinners, but God loves us anyway. And when you read it, without any connection to the overriding purpose of Scripture, which is to reveal to us that God loves us all so much He died for us, and by grace we are saved. When you read this chapter, without any of that to help us understand it, it's very easy to hear it and think, Paul was a patriarchal, boorish ascetic, with at best a contempt for marriage, and at worst... An understanding of marriage that bordered on crude. And if we are left with that impression from reading this chapter together, there are really two basic responses, both of which I think are very unfortunate. One is to dismiss it completely as out of date information from an out of touch, typically male gender biased, ancient prophet. And the other is to simply accept it at face value with some overused Christian catchphrase designed to make us feel better. Like, well, I don't necessarily like it, but it's God's word right there in black and white, so I have to obey it. But neither one of those responses allows us to engage the text in any authentic way at all. Both responses are dismissive. The first response dismisses everything. But if if we're not willing to engage Scripture at some level, then what's the point? I mean, if we're just going to dismiss it. There's always going to be Scripture that seems way out of touch. I mean, there was a psalmist that actually wanted to take the babies of his enemies and smash them to pieces on the rocks. That's way out of touch. But there is value in engaging that sound. And the other response is just as dismissive, though it tries to hide behind some glorious loyalty to the Bible. But it's not loyal at all. It's a view that reduces the good news to a set of rules. And whenever the good news is reduced to rules, there's not much good about the Bible. Luther, in fact, offers this challenging admonition to those who read the Bible that way. It has become a deplorable custom that the Gospels and the Epistles are treated like law books, in which one is to learn what we are to do, and in which the works of Christ are presented as nothing but an example held before one's eyes. Wherever this errant opinion remains within the heart, there neither Gospel or Epistle can be read usefully and in a Christian way. That is a spectacular quote. Print it out. Use it as your bookmark for your Bible readings. I wish I had stumbled across that some 30 years ago. It's now my bookmark for my Bible. But I don't think we have to respond to this chapter in either of those ways. I don't think we need to dismiss it all, and I don't think we need to blindly accept it. Because I think we're going to find, as we study chapter 7, that Paul was far from patriarchal, and he was far from an ascetic. In fact, I think we're going to find that Paul, in fact, was an incredible voice for women, at a time when women didn't necessarily have any voice. And we're going to find that his understanding of marriage and human sexuality was actually very respectful and quite complex. And even more importantly, as we go through chapter 7, we're going to find what we always find in Paul, if we're willing to read him closely enough. Christ crucified. The good news. And we will find that couched in beautiful poetry, brilliant composition that is often lost in most of our more common English translations. Before we dive into the text, though, there is an English version of the Bible that I think often does capture the poetry of the original. It's it's called... The message, it was put together by this man named Eugene Peterson. Over 20 years of academic scholarship went into writing this. I want to read to you from the beginning of chapter 7 from this version, now that we've just read it from one of our more common ones. Because I think it's magnificent. It's, It's wonderful. And I might do this actually, we'll be in chapter 7 for a few weeks, and I think I might choose to read the verses that we're going to be studying together from this. And I think what you're going to hear immediately is Paul's words are nowhere near as rough as they just sounded, and they're actually beautiful, no doubt what his original audience could have heard. Some of his poetry, some of his more beautiful nuances that he was trying to get to. I also think we're going to find, in fact, especially this will be important for those of you who question the validity of this version, is that Peterson's translation is incredibly faithful to Paul's intent, at least here in Corinthians. So, this is the first eight verses of Paul. Now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me. First... Is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly. But only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time, if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. (coughs) Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence. Only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Sometimes, I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriages. God gifts the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Beautiful, huh? Certainly takes the edge off what many of the words that we sort of just heard. Doesn't it? So, I think that we'll do that a bit together, and and hopefully we'll find that Paul has a different intent than maybe many of us have come to understand through chapter 7. So, we are now in the last homily of the second essay of 1 Corinthians. Sexual practice in harmony with the gospel takes up all of us. And this chapter is filled with all sorts of things. Equality and conjugal rights, widows and widowers, marriage, separation, divorce, Jew, Greek, slave, free, unmarried and impending distress, marriage and anxieties, man and his virgin, in case of death. And all of these are topics that the Corinthians brought up in a letter that they wrote to Paul that he wants to address. But let's keep in mind what we looked at for many, many weeks, what Paul is dealing with here in Corinth. These are not questions that necessarily come from people who are happy to be following Paul's example. All right? These are not the new Christians all excited, teach us what to do so we can do it. It's not what's going on here. There's certainly probably some people in Corinth genuinely interested in Paul's. Paul, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But for the most part, these are questions designed to argue an agenda. The Corinthian believers have agendas, and they're just full-on arguing with Paul over them. Remember, for many weeks leading up to this, especially when we were in chapter 5 and 6, Paul was taking on the bogus theology of the Corinthian libertines, the libertines. Okay, the people who were saying, now that we are hyper-spiritualized people, now that we're living like angels, we can do whatever we want with the body. Because the body is going to be destroyed anyway. So off they went with their stepmoms, and off they went with their prostitutes, and they were doing whatever they wanted to do. And Paul took on that theology. Now we're going to find in chapter 7, and on into many other chapters in Corinth, he's going to be taking on the bogus theology of the ascetics. These were people who were claiming that because they were hyper-spiritualized people, they needed to remove themselves from the things of the world, especially the evil things like the body and sex. They needed to get rid of them. And they were further arguing that because marriage and the body and sex are all going to go away, that they should get rid of them now. Corinth was a mess. Just like us. Messy. Thank God he loves messy people. So, Paul starts by taking on the one of the agendas of the Corinthians. No sex. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is not Paul's position. This is the Corinthian position. That's why I chose this particular translation because it gets the quotation mark right in. Now, granted, there is a big debate about whether or not this is Paul's position or whether this is the Corinthian position. Some scholars argue this is Paul's position. He thinks it's good for a man not to touch a woman in all circumstances unqualified. Others think it's the Corinthian position. I come down on the side that this is the Corinthian position that Paul is now going to debate and he's going to point out why they're wrong and he's going to qualify it for them. And what I want to do for a couple minutes this morning is explain why I think that. Because some of the best questions that some of you have asked me since Corinthians have started has to do with this idea, well, how do you reconstruct the backstory of this letter? So that you can say things like, this is the Corinthian position. So that's what I've been being asked by some of you. And I figure some of you are asking it, maybe others are thinking it and just haven't asked me yet. So I think it would be a good idea for me to explain, in this one situation, why do I believe this is the Corinthian position? And then you'll understand that as we go through this. I'm not just pulling stuff out of a hat and making it up. And why is this important? Because... How many of us have been reading... The Bible for a long time. How we read the Bible, how we approach Scripture matters. It does. And without any contextual understanding of what's going on, all of a sudden, things get turned into hard and fast Christian rules. People get labeled heretics, and other people get burned at the stake, and they're witches, and... And it gets horrible and horrible, and people are pointing at each other, they're not Christian, they're not Christian. They, Paul said it right here, and the others, I mean, Paul maybe didn't say it, and this is why this is important. So for those of you that have asked me this question, let me go over it. First of all, I don't believe Paul is an going it. I don't believe Paul ever would have said this. I don't believe he ever would have denied himself something just for the sake of denial to live some simple monkish lifestyle. Let's consider some of the things Paul has said Right here to the Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Does this sound like a guy that would say it's good not to have sex? I I, I don't think so. He said this, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This this is not an ascetic talking. At all. At all. And then, Paul also wrote, I think most scholars, 99% agree, he also wrote the letter to the Romans. So, all of chapter 14 deals with this same issue. This is how it starts. Except the one whose faith is weak. Without quarreling over the spiritual matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge among someone else's servant? Again, that doesn't sound like an ascetic and then two other books that most scholars agree Paul wrote, to the Colossians and, and to Timothy, he certainly rejected the idea of an ascetic spiritual lifestyle. He said to Colossians, since you died with Christ to the elemental spirit, spiritual force of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with you, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Wow. Does that sound like the same guy? That's telling the Corinthians it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And, and notice here, human commands and teachings. Oh, but it's right there. Oh, OK, It's right there. It could still be a human command and teaching, because remember, maybe the Bible's inspired. Man's interpretation of the Bible typically and often has not been inspired for years. And he said this to 1 Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Does that honestly sound like an ascetic? There is no way whoever wrote this wrote it's good for a man not to touch a woman. In fact, in fact, I I wish some people had sort of read this letter to Timothy. Paul right there to Timothy is saying, hey, there's people out there forbidding people to get married. Well, I know Christians who think Paul forbids people to get married. No, Paul doesn't. He's calling that bogus teaching from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been sealed. Interesting. Secondly, based on some of the things we're going to read right here in chapter seven, you can tell that it seems some people in Corinth were saying marriage was sinful. Paul eventually had to come right out and say, No, it's not. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. There is nothing in Paul's Christian theology that would tell him marriage is sinful, and certainly nothing in his Jewish theology either. Third, you often hear me quote Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar. Well, he points to Arabic translations of scripture from the, from the Middle East, ancient translations, from the original, that suggest that for well over a thousand years it has been understood that this... Oh, sorry... That it is good for a man not to touch a woman is the Corinthian position. Okay? So these are all the things that I go through when I'm trying to reconstruct the backstory to the book of Corinthians and why I say the certain things I do. So hopefully that's answered some people's questions. And, and one more thing I want to point out there's a scholar that you've often heard me quote a lot as well. He reconstructed the backstory to 1 Corinthians 7 this way. And and I think it's brilliant, because I think as we read through 7, you're going to see this is exactly why Paul has had to say some of the things he did. The Corinthian position would have gone something like this in their letter. Since you, Paul, are yourself unmarried, and are not actively seeking marriage, and since you have denied Cornea in your letter to us, is it not so that one is better off not to have sexual intercourse at all? After all, in the new age which we have already entered by the Spirit, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Why should we not be as angels now? See, that's brilliant. And that's exactly what Paul's dealing with. And we're going to see that as we read through chapter 7. And why we've been taking so long to get through this book. This is like our 25th week on 1 Corinthians, and we're only in chapter 7. But this is why I hear so many people, I have done it so many times in the past, say, well, Paul said it. And therefore, if you don't believe that, and you don't agree with it, you're not a Christian. I'm 48. I've learned more in the last 25 weeks about what Paul's really been teaching than I did my whole life. This is incredible stuff, and it's a beautiful chapter. So, I hope this has been an introduction to chapter 7, obviously. And I hope it's gotten us excited about studying. Because certainly reading it together probably didn't get us excited about studying. But I hope this has. Listen, I am well aware that everyone here is in a different place. Some of us are married. Some of us aren't married. And even those of us who are married, our marriages are all over the place. Some of us are widows. Some of us are divorced. Some of us are sexually active. Some of us are seldom. Some of us are old. Some of us are young. And I'm sure it would be very easy to sit there as that was being read and say, oh man, I really don't want a marriage class in church. I promise you, this is not going to turn into a marriage class. For however long it takes to get through chapter 7, it is not going to be a marriage class, I promise. We're going to talk about it. It's there in the details. But In fact, a lot of these details probably do touch on all of us, you know, married, unmarried, widowed, divorced, sexually active, not. But remember, we don't read the Bible for the details. Because the details might not be ours. We read the Bible to find our story there, as it relates to God's story and His love for us. And even when the details might not matter to us, or they might not speak to us, if we are willing to engage Scripture authentically, we're going to find that the greater story has a lot to say to us. And we're going to find that, I believe, pretty quickly in chapter seven. For we're going to discover that the overriding theme Paul is getting at in chapter seven, By way of these details about sex and marriage and widows and divorce, etc., all questions that the Corinthians brought up, the major theme that he is getting to is the idea that our circumstances are really not as important as we tend to make them out when we put them into eternal perspective. And that is a hopeful message all of us can engage. Because God knows in the world we live in, our circumstances are often terrible. Sometimes downright terrifying. But when we consider them in light of eternity, when we consider them in light of a love relationship with God, we can gain confidence that our suffering is not the end of the story. Love will win. Dave and Janaik sang three songs this morning. In the first song they sang, a line was, we knew joy was coming, but we just had to wait. Here's the backstory on that, that Dave just told me. Th- this is the coolest thing about Canada. D- Dave and I don't discuss the worship songs. We often discuss the specials. They're going to cover a special that I asked for in a closing, but we, we tend not to. They do the, the music team does their thing, and then they come together. Here's the backstory to that line. Most of you probably recognize Morning is Broken. It's an old, older song. Many different people have done it. That particular version is from Stephen Curtis Chapman. He wrote that line after one of his children were killed by one of his other children accidentally running over them in his driveway. Yeah, our circumstances might be bad. And that's horrible. But he got it. He got exactly what Paul's going to get at in chapter 7. Our circumstances are not the end of the story. And maybe we have to wait for joy, but it's coming. That opening video, that's a spiritual that came out of the cotton fields in our country. What worse circumstance were the slaves in our history? They knew a train was coming. And I don't even know if Dave had planned this, but then in the second song, <coughs> the beautiful Where Does My Help Come From in one line was, So I will wait for you. I will wait. You know, we're always trying to change our circumstances. Always trying to get control of our lives. Paul wrote chapter 7 to say, whoa, maybe your circumstances aren't the big deal you think they are. Here's Witterington commenting on his introduction in chapter 7. For Paul, the one thing of eternal significance that humans can do in this world is serve the Lord. Proclaiming the good news of eternal... What's his name, Chapman? He wrote that song out of Thus, he proclaimed the... What is really important then is not one's current circumstance, but one's sociological position. Even a slave can be the Lord's freedman. Thus, what is crucial is whether or not one is a Christian. Everything else is of relative worth in a world that is winding down. This is exactly why Paul wrote, Don't let it trouble you. He wasn't being flippant. Of course these are troubling things. Sure occurs, Chapman still cries every day years later. That's not what Paul is being flippant about. But he's saying in a bigger perspective, our circumstances are not what we think they are. And Fee adds, your calling in Christ eclipses circumstances, but thereby also transforms them. Into situations where you may live out your Christian life. (coughs) Beautiful, I think. I think we're going to find what started as a rather rough and disturbing scripture reading is another beautiful, beautiful homily by Paul that can speak to us all. So next week, we're going to start breaking down this massive, massive myth that Paul was some. Patriarchal, boorish ascetic who hated marriage and human sexuality. But for now, I want to encourage us that let's be conscious this week, every day, that our circumstances are not eternal. We are. We are. And let's live into that. And with great love, let's bring others with us.